Hello and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, this being number 88. Definitely a shirt number in hockey, it's also the number of constellations, and it's the number of keys on a piano, which may be why I'm a drummer, because 88 is way too many to deal with. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another ridiculously busy week here at DRHQ, also known as the bedroom converted into a messy office a few years ago. We'll get to the news in a little while, but first I'll let you know who we have on the podcast this week. And our guests are Patrick Camphouse, Senior Medical Affairs Director at Nutritia, Tenny Ekundare, Investor Outreach Manager for UK and Northern Europe for the FAIR Initiative, Frank Borman, Market Manager SBU Check Weighing at Metla Toledo, and Ken McCarty, Co-Owner of MVP Dairy. And there's the weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone. So a very varied lineup for you this week. One thing we do try to do is mix it up so there's no theme every week. Well, other than the music at the beginning. It's because the dairy industry is so varied and we want to bring you interviews related to what's in the news. And hopefully each week there will be something you'll be interested in. And hopefully you'll be interested enough to listen to it all. Maybe you'll even be able to listen on the commute soon. As some offices are starting to open in some places, although with plenty of changes, that's for sure. As for the past week, well, more rain, lockdown Father's Day, a little bit more sport, and the usual weekly struggle to get round the grocery store. And we've now passed the longest day in the Northern Hemisphere. Pretty exciting stuff. Well, there's been a ton of news this week. The proportion of news related to coronavirus does seem to have gone down quite a bit. And so let's take a look at some of the news you may have missed, or hopefully you've already read it all. SIG's recyclable straws hit the shelves in France on a juice product, although they can, of course, be used for dairy beverages. Food Union launched an e-commerce platform for consumers in Northern Europe and the Baltics. The UK government has set up a dairy response fund for English dairy farmers. DSM unveiled some new enzymes for plant-based dairy alternatives. There are going to be some virtual cheese awards in the UK, and by that I assume it means it will be all done online, not that it's virtual cheese. General Mills has launched a regenerative dairy pilot project in Michigan, and I did an interview about that for the podcast yesterday, so you have that to look forward to soon. And New Zealand's sheep milking industry is expanding. Lactali Ingredients launched a new skim milk powder for the condensed milk market. In New Zealand, Lewis Road Creamery milk dispensers and glass bottles are proving popular with shoppers. The IATP put out its latest report on dairy, and that didn't go down too well. Ecotensil launched plastic-free paperboard utensils in Europe, and those are the little spoon things you can find under a lid in some yogurts or ice cream tubs. Mekitech launched a new x-ray inspection system. Rabobank's latest dairy report looks at the post-lockdown picture. And Fonterra is set to pay farmers more for sustainable high-value milk. And those are only some of the articles we had on DairyReporter.com this week. So please do check it out and boost my stats. Better still, read them slowly. It'll boost the time on page stats as well. Okay, now I'm just sounding desperate. Let's get to this week's first guest. 
Nutritia, which is part of food, beverage and nutrition company Danone, is supporting research by independent medical professionals to define guidelines for nutritional care for COVID-19 patients recovering after ICU discharge. And to tell us more about what the company is doing is Patrick Camphouse, Senior Medical Affairs Director at Nutritia. Well, first of all, we are very thrilled and excited and I'm to be honest, also very proud that we recently announced that we will uh, provide a 1 million research grant to increase our knowledge and science about the impact of nutrition for COVID-19 recovery. This research will be initiated and conducted by uh, experienced clinical researchers and will be partly funded uh, by the known. The idea is that we will initiate this in 15 uh, countries around the globe the coming uh, two months. But uh, importantly to say, this is just one of the actions that the known company has done since the beginning of the crisis. And I want actually to mention three important ones. First, we uh, provided six millions of funds and provided 32 millions of products donations since the beginning of the crisis to help vulnerable people. Second of all, the known is really protecting its uh, people and uh, securing uh, contracts and uh, wages until end of June. And importantly to mention also is that the known is supporting its trading partners by providing a 300 million fund for uh, partners in its ecosystem, such as farmers or small, uh, small customers. So we do a lot. But um, myself, I'm very much involved in this 1 million research grants, uh, really hoping to advance science in this important area. What kind of products do you have that are relevant in this particular field? Well, Nutritia is uh, providing medical nutrition products. And medical nutrition means products that, um, uh, that are uh, meeting the nutritional needs of diagnosed patients. Often this is being initiated by healthcare professionals and also is being used under medical supervision. So to give you an example in COVID, I, I think most of the people do know that many of those patients are getting severely ill and needs to be hospitalized and often up in the intensive care unit. And of course, these patients have lost the ability to eat and they are sedated and needs to be fed by a tube. This is an example of products that we provide under the, the, the Nutrison range. When those patients are getting better, hopefully they are getting better, obviously, they are being discharged from the intensive care and can go to a ward or can go home. But often due to many reasons, still a diet alone is not enough to meet the nutritional needs. And these patients are being supported by orally by oral nutritional supplements to make sure that they have the right nutritional care they need for recovery. And this is being provided by, for instance, our 40 mil range, the Nutritia uh, products with high protein, high energy. Important, I think, uh, to mention uh, is that uh, medical nutrition is really shown as a category if you combine it with the right nutritional care and exercise in recovery programs to really improve clinical outcomes and reduce the healthcare costs and reduce speed of recovery in, in these uh, patients. And what will you be doing in terms of research into recovery from COVID-19? Important to say is that it is a new disease. Nevertheless, there are some similarities with other diseases that we do know from the past. Important what we want to do with this 1 million research grant is that we provide opportunities for healthcare providers to come up with their proposals about increasing the knowledge and advanced science about the information about how, to, how nutrition can impact care of those patients when they go home. So often, as you know, People are being really taken care of well in the hospital, but once they go home, it can be that the right nutritional care is being forgotten. What we do know from other areas, 
that providing medical nutrition is essential for the right recovery of those patients. So with this initiative, we hope that clinicians will have better information to define better practice-based guidance to how to manage those patients. Uh, and we, we will not be involved in uh, analyzing or publishing these data. So it's really independent clinical research, but we really do think this is the right thing to do at this moment to improve the knowledge base of how better take care of those patients. Who are you collaborating with on the, uh, on the studies? So this, uh, this research is uh, being initiated in, uh, and, and conducted in 15 countries around the globe with different healthcare prof- uh, organizations in, in different universities, different cities. And there will be a diversity of research questions they will have about, for instance, what is the nutritional deficiency or the nutritional need of those patients. So, for instance, some of the researchers will investigate once those patients go home from hospital towards and are being discharged from hospital, what are the protein needs of those patients, as an example. Some others will investigate a practice-based guidance that they have developed and will audit, if they do it, with introducing medical nutrition and recovery programs, what the impact of quality of care of those patients will be and what, of course, how healthcare can be positively impacted by medical nutrition. You, you kind of answered this one already, but I wonder what other support mechanisms you have for researchers and hospitals. I mean, there's obviously there's the donations, but yeah. what, what kind of databases and support and knowledge are you able to share and, and support them with? Besides the research, and indeed you are mentioning already product donations, so we also provide uh, products to healthcare providers that take care of nutritional care after hospital discharge, so to make sure that nutritional care is continued when patients do leave the hospital into recovery and rehabilitation programs. But second of all, also what we do is trying to support uh, information exchange by uh, physicians and healthcare professionals. For instance, via educational webinars. We have done them a lot lately. As an example, we just did recently a webinar uh, that has been organized by IFAT, which is the European Federation of Dietetic Associations, that was proudly supported by Nutritia. And in these webinars, uh, there are uh, healthcare professionals or clinicians really do present the latest scientific information about the nutritional needs of those patients and how well, how to take care of this patient best. And there's Q&A sessions. And in this way, we reach hundreds to thousands of healthcare professionals all around the globe in which we can interchange and exchange scientific information, how to take care of those patients and how they can independently, uh, of course, of industry, inform each other about uh, educational purposes and how to take care of those patients. Do you have staff available for, for instance, a hospital or a doctor wanted information or needed some immediate information you have people that can do that on a on a one-to-one basis quickly in most of course the countries we do have uh, internet pages where people do go and will learn but of course we also have care lines and in some cases we are working together with home care providers or so organizations that do support uh, medical nutrition at home and of course in this way uh, we could also answer uh, practical questions that uh, patients might have on how to use our products you already mentioned the fact that this is a relatively new disease, but there are some similarities with other ones because mm-hmm. coronavirus is is a group of, of diseases. Have you done similar studies on other things like this in the past? 
yeah. So there are it is new, but there are similarities. For instance, with viral pneumonia patients into critical care, so into the intensive care unit, there are of course very many similarities. And in these areas, in the past, we have shown or others have shown that if you introduce medical nutrition together with exercise, you improve the quality of care of those patients and you improve the recovery time that people need to get better. Because you have to remember, uh, surviving the intensive care is part, it's the first part of the journey. The second part is recovering to the normal norm. And many of those patients are sedated for many weeks in the intensive care. They lose extremely a lot of muscle, are extremely weak when they get out of intensive care. I think we all have seen patients at Tally and can resemble that fact. These patients do say that they are extremely tired, cannot walk up the stairs, cannot go to the shop to do groceries, etc. So they need a lot of uh, long-term recovery and rehabilitation. And we do know that uh, nutrition is a vital element together with exercise to improve quality of life of those patients. Unfortunately, it's often be forgotten or neglected because the Awareness of healthcare professional for medical nutrition is very low. So this is also one of the reasons to do this research so that we will increase the knowledge and so that healthcare professionals will talk much more about medical nutrition and rehabilitation and will inform each other about how to do this, how to develop practice-based guidance about how to better take care of these patients with the right nutritional care. What you're working on now and the research that you're doing, it's important insofar as it's helping people to get better. But when you do studies like this and the results come in, what does that teach you about your own products in terms of future product development or ways in which it can be used? Obviously, it's a learning process for you as well. Yes, absolutely. It's a really good question. Well, first, uh, it's really important to mention, of course, that the objective of the research grant is really to develop the advance of science and the knowledge in the communities in which we operate so the healthcare professional there can make better practice-based guidance on how to take care of those patients. But from that, we, but also the industry, and of course, also healthcare professional, the whole society will learn better about how to take care of those patients, maybe about the frequency of using medical nutrition or in how to use it in combination with exercise. That's, that's one part. So more the amplification of medical nutrition as a whole in clinical practice. I think we will learn a lot from that. And second of all, many of the research will tell us also about the nutritional needs of those patients. So maybe we'll learn that patients need a certain more protein or a certain vitamin or mineral or that they are deficient in X, Y, Z. And this information is, again, is then widely available for us, for industry and society to, to adapt our products to better address the nutritional needs of these patients later on. So when you say industry, if you, if you come up with something that's really important and that there's an important gap in the database, you would share that with your competitors even? It's a, yeah, uh, well, it's a really important to mention this is independent clinical research, so we will not be involved in, in uh, analyzing or publishing the, the data. It's really a research grant that we provide for healthcare professionals to initiate and conduct clinical research to increase the knowledge base on how to take care of these patients. So this information will be available for us, competitors, and society as a whole. When do you expect to see some results from some of the trials and tests that you're doing at the moment? Healthcare professionals and healthcare organizations can op- come up with their proposals, and, uh, and most of those proposals have been uh, submitted to us. And we, the whole aim is to initiate this research within two months, and we expect the first results around autumn. 
because obviously with something like this, you you want to try and get get it underway and start seeing some tangible results as quickly as possible, I guess. Absolutely, and therefore we also really have decided that it needs to be independent, clinical, investigated-led research that's been initiated by healthcare professionals or healthcare organizations themselves, and that the whole aim is to do pragmatic practice-based research to really define better the guidance of how to take care of these patients, and not so much long-term, more scientific research. Uh, It's really a practice-based research that we want to initiate. Next, it's over to Frank Borman, Market Manager, SBU Check Weighing at Metla Toledo, to talk about the company's new series of washdown resistant check weighers for precision weighing applications in food manufacturing environments, which, of course, includes the dairy industry. I wonder if you could just give me a bit of background on the company and the products that you make. Yeah, Metla Toledo is the company who is, or, or my division is uh, the product inspection um, um, equipment division. So we are supplying factories with product inspe- inspection equipment like X-ray machines, like metal detectors and check weighing, and um, as well vision camera systems. So I'm working for the strategic business unit check, unit check weighing at Metla Toledo Garvens, um, which is based here in Germany. Our customers are food production customers and pharma customers, everything what you find in the supermarket at least um, must run um, over our machines that uh, they are inspected and checked that you have no contaminated products in the supermarket and that you have always the correct fill level, maybe in a yogurt cup or in a a flower bag um, that you are not uh, paying for an underfilled package. That's that's what we do with uh, do with the check weigher. We are checking the correct fill level and uh, searching for contamination, and we are rejecting that uh, contaminated products or non-conforming products when they are contaminated or underfilled or even overfilled. So we are kind of um, policemen in the production line and um, looking after the products and uh, consumer safety that nobody gets hurt from any contamination. And as far as the dairy industry is concerned, what uh, what products and what kind of dairy products would you be working with? You know, the dairy is a special special area because um, often we have maybe when we are talking about soft cheese processing or hard cheese processing, we are talking about um, raw products running over the production lines, and then the risk of bacterial contamination is really really high, and therefore. You must have special uh, machine design, which is designed and able to clean very easy and um, very often and often with harsh cleaning detergents and with hot water and um, high pressure water hoses. So the design of the machines for dairies or food production where we are talking about unpacked products, um, there we have special requirements on the design of the machine. Big challenges in dairy then. Yeah, the biggest fear in dairies is um, and, and bacterial contamination. This is the biggest fear. Do you deal with companies and processes worldwide, or is it just in Europe? No, this is uh, worldwide. We are working um, with uh, several market organizations in um, several countries, and we have as well channel partners where we don't have a market organization. Um, but we are working together with all companies worldwide and also the multinational companies 
for the big names um, are on our uh, customer listings. One of the biggest considerations then, I guess, when you're dealing with things like safety and food products is that many countries would have different regulations. Yeah, um, it comes from area to area, but there's uh, there are a couple of major major regulations like the FSMA, Food Safety Modernization Act, or when we are talking about HACCP and HRCP, um, these are regulations which help our customers and the production um, factories and companies to set up a concept for food safety and cleaning regimes. So there are a couple of regulations, but from area to area, there's not a big difference. And what are the new products that you've just launched? Yeah, we have a check weighing weighing series that is the C-series check weigher. And uh, for the C-series check weigher, we created two kind of machines in washdown design. Therefore, we have the perfect IP rating. IP rating is the English protection against something um, what you are doing when you are cleaning machines. Uh, So the IP rating is here, the IP69. And this is the rating for uh, uh, that the machines are able to be cleaned with high pressure and hot water, um, and they are completely covered, and they can yeah they can work in harsh environments as well. What are the advances in this particular equipment from what was uh, what was available previously? Yeah, you know. From my point of view, the biggest benefit is um, the easy-to-clean situation. When we are looking into cleaning procedures, machines uh, will get foamed with um, caustic detergents, rinsed with splash water, and then um, they have to wait until everything is getting dry again. So cleaning time is downtime. And when you have a machine which is very easy to clean, you are reducing your downtime. And that's the factor from the um, check weighing series from Metal to Lidl. The C-series washdown check weigher are very easy to clean. You can disassemble everything what you need to disassemble without any tools. You have the possibility for cleaning in place. So you can take out conveyor belts, rollers, and so on. Take everything into a a washing machine or a dishwasher. Or you have the possibility to clean off place or clean in place that everything can stay on the machine. Um, you just take the belts out and then you can uh, leave everything on the machine for cleaning in place. So the key and the benefit is it must be easy to to clean, to reduce downtime, which you have um, suddenly when you are cleaning, um, then you the machine is not running and then you are not producing. And it's very easy for the operators to do all of this? Yeah, that was, that was uh, the target when we were um, developing that machine. Everybody who is working in these environments um, must be able to disassemble and assemble very easily all the parts. And when everything is disassembled, it mustn't be possible that you are mixing up the parts, that you are using the rollers from the infeed section on the outfeed section. So this is absolutely impossible on our design. We have different skill levels and education levels in, in production areas. And um, therefore, we created um, a machine which is very easy and very simple to use. Things have changed a little bit in terms of staffing lately with the coronavirus and having having people back in processing units is going to be slightly different. Is that going to be easier because of machines like this? Yeah, everything is related. Everything is related to the concept the, the companies are, are driving. So you have normally um, areas where you have special hygienic rules. Uh, clean rooms, 
And when you are entering that rooms, you have to fulfill different uh, criteria. So you have to maybe get to an hygienic zone where you are get completely disinfection, and uh, then you are able to 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 enter the production area. So it, it is um, depending to yeah the company's uh, yeah HACCP concept and and hygienic concept um, how they are organized. But uh, with regards to COVID nineteen and the coronavirus, I would say. Yeah, um, companies must really take care that they are not getting any issues into the production and contamination based on that into the food processing, yes. I guess with the ease of disassembly and reassembly and also the ability to clean in place must be good time-saving and cost-savings for companies? It's the complete package and the complete picture you must take into consideration. And um, yeah, when when you are when you are cleaning, as I mentioned before, when you are doing the cleaning procedures, you have downtime. When something gets broken during the cleaning, you must order spare parts, and then you are waiting. So that means downtime. Everything must be reliable, and um, therefore you should invest into reliable machines and um, good quality machines. And you have to trust your supplier, regardless if it is Metler Toledo or anybody else. Um, I think when you are believe in your supplier and you have trust to him and um, everything is reliable, this is this is a big step forward. And the new check weighing machines are those already in use in facilities? Yeah, we we started some um, better tests with um, dedicated um, customers. Uh, the product is recently launched. We wanted to launch it on the biggest fair in in Germany on the Interpark, but this Interpark fair is postponed. And therefore, we uh, we launched that product um, yeah, via the internet and we did a virtual fair. So we started in May with the official launch and now our market organization able, are able to make customer meetings and introduce these systems to, to our customers. We had on the older um, check weighing series, on the X-series, we had as well the IP65 uh, stainless steel uh, solutions, which was... Um, um, also a solution for harsh environments in the washdown um, environment, um, but the C-series and um, um, C-series washdown check weighing systems are available since beginning of May, and we just started the promotion of that. We have just a couple of installations and uh, feedbacks on, on customers all over the world. And what's the feedback been like from customers so far on the ones that have used it? Yeah, I think, I think uh, we made... A lot of things absolutely correct. The feedback is, um, yeah, the machine is very easy to use. It's very reliable. Uh, the good thing is uh, the tool-free disassembling and that you are not able to change the parts, to mix up the parts in, in assembling. The machine has software tools on board, which will help also the operators in the line to work according to, to their job description. The feedback is absolutely positive because it's very, very easy to, um, to handle, very easy to clean. We have only four feet on the floor and the machine frame is very open that maybe products which are coming from the production are falling on the machine frame. They can fall down to the floor, so it is easy to swipe the floor because you have only four feet on the floor and the frame is open and no products can lay and um, be left on the machine frame. So this is this is something what we get as feedback that our customers are really happy with the design and these open frame structure. And you said about the fact that it's very easy to use and that you can't mix up the parts. How do you manage to do that? Is it like through color coding or how does how do you manage to 
No, no, we were we were really thinking about uh, color coding and marking. But when you are washing the machine with high pressure water hoses in hot water, um, after the tenth tenth time cleaning, um, the color is gone. So we made um, mechanical things um, that you are not able to take out rollers from the infeed section and put it into the into the outfit section. It's just a simple mechanical design on each individual roller. And I suppose as well, you you have the capacity for helping, and you have training, and you're always available to help your customers anyway. Yeah, due to the fact that we are a worldwide organization, um, we have uh, I think roughly fourteen thousand Metal Toledo service engineers around the world, um, and one of our major um, yeah benefits and values is that we. Uh, we are understanding the customer needs. They need production. They don't want to have downtime. The overall equipment efficiency must be high. So then you must supply the correct support, the correct service, the correct training. Also with documentation, when you are looking into um, getting audits from um, yeah, maybe maybe um, retailers like um, Marks & Spencer or Tesco or McDonald's, Aldi and all the retailers, they are knocking on the door and asking for an audit and asking for documentation. When do you have had the last uh, cleaning procedure? How do you clean? Um, everything is written in our documentation and you just have to take out the folder um, out of the machine and then you can show it. So the full package, it's not only the machine and the design, it's all, also the full package for which we can deliver from Metla Toledo with a service, with the training of the operators. And we are doing also seminars for food safety concepts, HACCP concept, food safety seminars, and so on and so on. There have been a couple of reports on the dairy industry published recently that haven't gone down too well in the sector. The first of them was published by FAIR and it's called An Industry Infected. It says global dairy companies are among 44 firms criticised by investors for their inability to prevent the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. To tell us more about the report, what it means and what companies can do is Tenny Ekundare, Investor Outreach Manager for UK and Northern Europe for the FAIR initiative. If we'll just start with the uh, with the background on on Fair, then what it what it is and what it does and what this report is. Fair is a global collaborative investor network, and we focus very much on addressing and assessing all the risks and opportunities that are faced by participants when it comes to the animal protein industry. So, our mission is very much to continue to build our network to make sure that we're looking at the key risks linked to intensive animal production within the broader food system and that we're helping our investor members to exercise their influences, just being responsible stewards of capital to engage with these companies, encourage them to um, improve their operating uh, practices, and thereby try and safeguard the long-term value of the investment portfolios, and in the process contribute towards a more sustainable food system. And the report itself uh, that you said before we, we started, you mentioned the fact that this is all data that's already out there. It's not stuff that you've just sort of made up out of or pulled out of thin air. <laughs> the report uses insight from our flagship index, the Protein Producer Index. This is something that we publish annually and update in September to October every year. And in it, we examine 60 of the global meat and dairy 
and aquaculture companies across a range of risk factors and opportunity factors. So we're looking at things like their corporate governance, their antibiotic usage, uh, their working conditions and animal welfare as well. And we use publicly available records to um, assess these companies. We're looking at the company's sustainability reports, uh, their annual reports. We're looking at data that you can get from governing or regulatory bodies like the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And what we've done in the pandemic reports is that we have first looked at the long term effects of the crisis on the meat industry, of the COVID crisis on the meat industry. We've examined how and why the industry has been particularly hard hit by COVID. We've looked at uh, how we believe some of these risks could be mitigated. And then we've examined the 60 um, large companies that I've already mentioned when it comes to meat, fish and dairy companies in terms of creating a pandemic ranking. Now, the ranking, as I said, feeds through from our protein producer index and um, has really streamlined the risk and opportunity factors that we look at to those which we feel are really relevant to pandemic risk. So we're looking at deforestation and biodiversity loss, antibiotics, waste and pollution management, working conditions, food safety and animal welfare, as well as the opportunity factor of diversification into sustainable proteins. Now, when we um, did this assessment in this report, we found that over 70% of the world's largest companies um, in, this, in this region are high risk when it comes to threats of future zoonotic outbreaks. And none of them, not, not any of them, unfortunately, were actually able to be awarded a low risk ranking. Critically to us, that shows that the meat industry is likely to foster future pandemics, as well as being especially vulnerable to the impact of these pandemics. So it's a pretty difficult place to be in when you're in an industry that's both at risk of starting a pandemic and also at risk of falling victim to the pandemic as well. And you said that all of that data is from the companies and it's available and it's transparent on your website? Yes. On the website, you can actually see broad overview of the uh, protein producer index and also of the pandemic risk and report. So that's at www.fairfair.org. And we have more detailed section, which is available to our investor members. And there you're actually able to really drill down into the detail of how it is that we come to uh, the report and the scoring that we actually give the companies. We try to be as transparent as we can with these companies. And so when we um, assess them, we we always ensure that we provide the companies with a copy of the report for their review so that we can, I like to think of it as them having a right to reply. So we can speak to them to see whether there's any issues that they feel that or anything that they're doing in this ESG space that they feel that we have not accurately assessed. And we'll always have that dialogue and conversation so that it should essentially not be new information to them when we publish the Protein Producer Index. This only covers 60 companies. I know there are some big dairy companies mentioned in there, but there are also some big dairy companies that aren't. Is there any reasoning behind why some of those big companies and cooperatives are and aren't included? There isn't, but basically we don't focus exclusively on any one segment of the animal protein chain. So we are looking at dairy, we are looking at beef, pork, poultry, eggs and aquaculture. And in order to try and ensure that we're looking at the industry in the correct amount of detail and depth, we want to make sure that the scope of our analysis is detailed enough to really make a difference and really help both investor members, but also the wider public 
and these companies to really understand the issues and um, opportunities that we feel that they face. So we chose to stop at 60 companies simply as a matter of resourcing so that we aren't ever at risk of compromising the quality of what we're producing simply for increasing the volume. And because we are trying to take a more of a broad industry overview, look at the industry as a whole, we felt that it didn't make sense to just focus at any one particular segment within the within the animal protein sector. What are the implications of that for these companies and for the dairy companies? I think that the the implications really fall into two broad categories. Firstly, it's about them trying to become more robust in terms of their addressing their operating models. And secondly, it's also about trying to become more robust when it comes to their product mix. So looking at the operating models, I think that they need to be really proactive about monitoring, improving and reporting on issues such as the risk factors that we're examining, antibiotics usage on their animals, uh, waste management, close confinement of their animals, and even workers and working conditions, because these criteria can contribute to zoonotic pandemics. And that's something that the world obviously is now very, very much more determined to avoid. And secondly, it's about diversifying their product portfolio. So we've seen booming sales and plant-based, even before, frankly, we're going into COVID, it's been on quite a steep upper tra- trajectory. And that to us really reinforces the need for these dairy firms to be diversifying away from just pure play animal-based milk production. Plant-based milks used to be just 1% of the U.S. Um, milk market and has now grown to be 13%. And actually, we've seen two of the biggest U.S. dairy companies being caught out by this shift. You had Dean Foods in November last year filing before bankruptcy and Borden Dairy in January this year filing for bankruptcy, two of the largest uh, U.S. milk producers. And that's because, uh, in large part because consumer demand for cow's milk has plummeted. So we would really encourage these dairy companies to be more proactive in shifting towards alternative, more sustainable milk products uh, and substitutes because that actually helps them meet consumer demand, improve their resiliency when it comes to pandemics, and also protects their long-term growth prospects as well. And are you able and willing to have dialogue with companies to see what can be done? We are happy to work with all the companies in the index. For us, it's a case of we want to make sure that we are encouraging them when it comes to their future operations and their future growth strategy. So I would say that it's not that we will be able to work with them in terms of and these are the key companies that you should be looking at, but be able to help encourage them in terms of what are we seeing is industry best practice? Who are we seeing as doing particularly well when it comes to the diversification of into plant-based milk and meat? And how can we encourage these companies to actually take advantage of that as well? And what kind of reaction are you getting to the report? And not necessarily from the companies that are included in it, but what kind of reaction is the report getting? It's, we've had quite a lot of interest and attention on this. I think that particularly because of COVID, you're seeing so many Uh, more people focusing on what it is that they're eating. So on the consumer side, uh, you've seen whether it's in the US with plant-based meats increasing 200% year on year, or whether you see the share price of Beyond Meat, which is up over 90% this year, you're seeing that people are focusing and interested in what's going on in the plant-based sector. Now, when it comes to our report, where we're looking at the animal protein producers, you've had a lot more interest and enthusiasm when it comes to understanding how it is that these companies are at such risk, how and why it is that they're at such risk. Because we've seen all the headlines out of the US and incidentally out of Australia, Germany as well, about the working conditions and the risk that some of these companies have when it comes to spreading um, the spreading the virus. 
people want to understand why it is that these companies are at such high risk, what it is about their operating models that mean that even though they're at such scale, being 60 of the largest companies, they're not resilient. And how it is that we've ended up in a place where we have this trade-off between the economies of scale, which the companies seem to be trying to and driving towards, and the resiliency of trying to weather this kind of storm. Um, so inve our investor members have been um, very interested and very encouraged by this in terms of helping them to understand how they can actively engage with these companies, come alongside them as shareholders in these companies, to encourage the companies to become more thoughtful in the way that they are actually operating. I think that there's a wide range of, of reactions from companies as well. But generally, we are very much trying to encourage these companies to say that this is how we view you today based on the information data that you have released and assessed, uh, have released to the public and that you have put into the public domain. We encourage you to do more work on this area. If there is work that you're doing which we're not accounting for, then by all means release it because we aren't trying to say just use a stick and say these companies are really bad. What we're trying to do is flag the risk that they're in these companies in order to be able to encourage them, encourage engagement with them for them to improve their operating models. And so while some of these might be challenges, there are also plenty of opportunities. It's not the end of the road by any means. Absolutely. It's about evolving as the industry, as the market evolves, as your consumers evolve, as knowledge and information becomes more widespread in terms of how you can actually operate. It's about evolving, encouraging these companies to evolve as they as they grow. Plenty of opportunity for everybody then. Yes, <laughs> certainly there is. I didn't want this to be all doom and gloom. You know, I know it's, it's it can be perceived as negative, but it, it's also an opportunity for change as well. And that's what I really want to stress. I think that um, just generally across the whole spectrum of society when it comes to COVID and how it is that people are responding to it and adapting to it or trying to adapt and see what uh, the new version of normal is going to be. It's not about the doom and gloom because this is obviously a very tough time globally, but it is about, okay, let's try and make sure that we are learning from this period of time and make sure that we're learning the right lessons for um, individuals in terms of how to move forward and move out to this crisis but also for companies as well in terms of how to move forward and how to move out of this crisis. And so it is a case of these are the risks that we see, but there are opportunities. There is the ability to turn things around. There's the ability to do better. In the US, Ohio-based MVP Dairy has earned B Corp certification from the nonprofit B Lab, becoming one of the few dairy farms in the world to achieve this certification. And to tell us how and why is one of the co-owners of MVP Dairy, Ken McCarty. My name is Ken McCarty, and I'm the youngest of the four McCarty brothers, and we make up the M portion of MVP. And to give you a little bit of background on our family, we are fourth generation dairymen. Uh, my great grandfather started our farm in the early 1900s in northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, my grandfather took that farm over. Uh, my dad, dad and mom, when they got out of college, bought some ground about a mile away from that original farmstead and built the dairy that my brothers and I were born and raised on. In the early 90s, my parents began to realize that the future was not necessarily bright for my brothers and I to come back to the dairy if we so chose. So they began to look for opportunities elsewhere in the U.S. Uh, for us to move to to stay within the dairy industry. And uh, looked all throughout the, the U.S. 
and eventually settled here in northwest Kansas. Very different part of the country, very different geography, uh, very different landscape, very different economic makeup. Uh, we moved here in 1999 and started dairying here in April of 2000. And we had dairied in the, sold our milk into the traditional co-op system. And, you know, we, we steadily grew. I grew up on 150 cow dairy. And, uh, when we moved to Kansas, we, we started milking about 800 cows. And, uh, for a variety of reasons, we, uh, primarily, uh, economic reasons, the, the, the need to try to drive down production costs to stay in business, we, we grew. And we had historically, we wanted to find a, a different way of selling milk, uh, a way of selling milk that uh, valorized, placed an incentive and a value on doing things better, uh, on innovation, on an, things like animal welfare and environmental sustainability, predictability and, and stability. That led us to a variety of different conversations with couple different milk buyers, but eventually led us to some conversations with, uh, at the time, uh, the Dannon Company. Today, uh, they'd be known as Danone North America. We began our first conversations with them in 2010 to sell our milk to them in a direct supply cost plus model. And uh, that led us to, to some additional growth. We milked cows uh, at the start of our relationship with, with Dannon on three different farms. Um, total herd size, total milking cow herd size was about 7,000 cows, all in northwest Kansas. Uh, and throughout this relationship, and I should add that we built a, an evaporative milk condensing plant on uh, the original uh, farm here in Kansas to, to handle the uh, separating uh, and condensing of the raw milk that was produced on those three farms. As that relationship matured and we continued to seek uh, opportunities for growth, uh, that led us to look at other Dan and milk sheds, and that led us to looking into West Central Ohio, and that led to a, a rather fortuitous meeting with another fourth-generation farming family from West Central Ohio, the Van Tilburg brothers, who were also, they were traditionally row crop farmers and had some other uh, ag retail services and things like that. And they were looking for a way to connect what they did on the ground farther down the value chain or, or closer to the consumer, I should say. And we had some conversations with them about what our goals were and our, our philosophies were. They shared what their goals and philosophies were, and, and we were very much aligned. So uh, that eventually led to us partnering and forming MVP Dairy, McCarty Van Tilburg Partnership Dairy. That dairy began operations in November of 2018, so we're, we're close to approaching our two-year anniversary here in a few months. And we milk today, oh, just shy of 4,000 cows and sell all of that raw milk uh, directly to Danone North America to their Minster yogurt plant. And in, in a very similar pricing model as to what we, what we began with out here in western Kansas in a direct supply cost plus model. Now you've undergone this, uh, the B Corp certification. Could you explain mm -hmm. 
what that is and how how long it takes, what you need to do in order to get that? Sure, sure. To know North America uh, embarked on the journey of becoming a B Corp here uh, a few years ago. And today, uh, I believe they're the largest B Corp in the world. You know, we view our relationship with didn't know North America as as more of a partnership. We work incredibly hard on both sides to avoid uh, a transactional mentality. And uh, when they made that step, uh, we felt it was important not only to to deepen the relationship that we have with with them, but also because we believe in the in the values and the morals that are the the foundational principles of B Corp of B-Lab. And so we be, we began to explore that process. Basically, as soon as that dairy was operational, uh, we began to explore the process of how to become a, a certified B Corp. And uh, it wasn't an easy process. It took a long time. And my brothers and I and, and uh, the Van Tilburg brothers, we began that journey together. And then the, the real heavy lifting was done by uh, another member of our team uh, named Allison Ryan, she she did a lot of the uh, boots on the ground work to get us certified. And that process entails a, a pre-assessment that basically gives you uh, the go or no go to to move forward with the the full blown B Corp assessment. And, you know, that that assessment evaluates us on you know, our environmental sustainability practices, our uh, our human resources practices, our buying practices, how transparent we are to our customer or to, to consumers in general. So it's a very wide uh, evaluation geared on continuous improvement and geared on uh, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, care for your stakeholders with the overarching continuous improvement mentality. Those are all things that are really key principles of, of our families and, and, and of our business. We're very familiar with third-party auditing. You know, all of our farms are audited for animal welfare in, in a variety of different audits, audited for uh, environmental sustainability, uh, food safety and security, worker care, you know, so we're very, we're very familiar with this and uh, with that type of auditing process. And uh, we believe that the B Corp certification really just quantified where we were at in all of those bundled into one, one certification. And, you know, it's very difficult to manage what you don't measure. The B Corp certification gives us the measurement framework and the measurement tool to drive positive change and positive progress uh, within within our farms and within our business. What are the benefits to actually being a, a B Corp? Because I guess if you're one of the first in the field to do that, what kind of benefits does it give you? I think the benefits are, are, are many. Uh, one, there's obviously the uh, just the inherent satisfaction of knowing that we can be assessed by by people who who would view our business from a, a an outsider's perspective, and we can be found to be doing things by and large the right way. 
there's a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction in that. And as I mentioned earlier, there's the business benefit of the fact that we are aligning our values with our customers' values, and we're creating a, a larger ecosystem of using business as a force for good. And that's incredibly important to us. We as a family and, and as a company believe that our responsibility to, to our business, to our stakeholders, to our families, to the next generation, to our cattle is larger than just increasing profitability. Between my brothers and I, my parents, uh, the Van Tilburg brothers and, and their parents and, and the generations that preceded us, we have the we have the opportunity to be dairymen to be involved in agriculture today because the the people that that came before us took a larger view of our family's business than just making money and that same viewpoint and that same mentality is maybe it's been bred into us but it, it has certainly been coached into us by our parents and I, I hope that I'm coaching that into my children as well. But, you know, we believe that for us to be viable for the next generation, we need to be more accountable and more responsible to the world than just viewing it through a lens of profitability. But beyond that, one of the other big benefits that I see is being a, a certified B Corp and being a member of that community exposes us to other people, other companies, other families that have the same mission in mind and exposes us to new ideas, uh, new perspectives that, that maybe we hadn't really considered before and new ways in which we can continue to improve our, our farms, improve our business and take our farms to the next level. That I think is is and we're new to the community, so we're we're just testing those waters out now. But those are that's one of the the things that I'm most excited about is simply becoming able to to participate in that community and learn from from people that are doing things different or or maybe better than than we are. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in that. And then, hey, it goes back to what I talked about before. It's having the framework to quantify where we're at and know where maybe we're very strong, look at where we could improve, and then utilize access to that community to drive improvement in those areas where we can. As far as like other farms, other companies embarking on this journey, do you, would you recommend it? And are there any things that you would have done differently or that you learned along the way? Yeah, so first and foremost I would I would absolutely recommend that that people strive to achieve this. You know, I I just fundamentally believe that it's the right thing to do. But, you know, that being said, it isn't for everybody and it isn't easy. The pre-assessment will help steer people in the right direction and give people that are interested in becoming a B Corp the ability to see uh, how feasible it is and, you know, what, what initial changes they may or may not have to make to their farm or their business to take the next steps. But we, we certainly have learned a lot through this process. So we have achieved B Corp status 
at MVP Dairy, and we are actively pursuing it at uh, our farms in in Kansas and in Nebraska. And uh, I, I can assure you that that process will flow uh, much smoother and much faster uh, than than what it did at MVP because this was all new to us, you know. And uh, so we've we've certainly learned. Uh, the questions that are going to be posed, we've certainly learned where to access that data or that those protocols or what have you internally. Uh, but it's also given us a tremendous amount of, of education on things that maybe we need to to revise or, or opportunities for improvement in terms of simply statements and contracts with people or additions to uh, our employee handbooks or, uh, you know, taking information that we already are, are gathering and making it publicly available. You know, all things that are well, well within the realm of possibility and easily achievable. You know, it's just a matter of, of taking those challenges on and working to get better every day. I guess now that you've got this, it's not just a case of saying, okay, we did it and just resting on your laurels. I guess, how do you continue to grow and what, what's next in the journey? When we were kids, our dad would always tell us that, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, that wasn't a, a message of get bigger. It was a message of get better. And in, in order to become a B Corp, uh, we, we have to achieve a, a certain score. And so for us, the first goal is, well, the first goal would be to achieve B Corp certification on, on the farms and in the processing plant here in, in Kansas and Nebraska. The next goal is to improve our score from where it was to better than that. Obviously, we now have the framework and the system to evaluate that. But those are the those are the initial goals. And but beyond that, it's it's about, uh, in our mind, being transparent enough to to share our challenges or our successes or opportunities that we see with other farms and other groups, companies, whoever, families that want to embark on this journey as well. That's one of the big goals that we have for this is to become not just a check the box member of the B Corp community, but to become a basically an ambassador for the B Corp community and to help others move along that process. And we hope to inspire other farms or other companies to embark on that journey as well. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone. Hi, Jim. Uh, well, the dairy markets uh, continue to grind slightly higher this week um, for for most products, really. Um, I mean, take the, the European quotations. Uh, you saw small increases on, on both butter and skim milk powder. Um, up kind of 0.8% for butter and 0.3% uh, for, for skim. But it's it's been a quite a, I suppose, continuous uh, increase over the last month or so, and I guess people are starting to uh, ask some questions about how sustainable this increase is. Um, and when you look at the fundamentals, I think there is some some quite divergent uh, kind of bits of information out there. 
starting with milk production uh, the numbers continue to come in reasonably okay and um, certainly in Europe we are starting to uh, see reductions in terms of the year-on-year -year, um, percentage increases but still looking reasonably positive and uh, you know there was some concerns uh, two or three weeks ago about uh, the weather being extremely dry across most of the main dairy producing regions in Europe and that concern is uh, has abated a little bit as we as we saw some good rains over the last two weeks but again now it's starting to look very warm and dry for for large parts of Europe so that so that point is back on the uh, on the table but overall the farm level economics look okay um, with these improving prices for butter and skim milk powder we're now getting back to to price levels for uh, milk equivalent which look reasonably profitable for for most farmers around Europe um certainly not uh, extremely strong but but good enough levels where we'd normally we shouldn't see any pullback in milk production as a result of the economics let's say it that way so from that side it's looking okay and um a big question still in terms of the the global demand uh, as a as a knock on effect from from covid and uh, so far seems Things seem to be doing a little bit better than had been and had been anticipated. I think a large part of that can be put down to some very large buying programs uh, from the U.S. government, but also even the European exports in general have been quite good. Um, we've seen strong imports into China, and yeah, in general things are looking okay. Also, uh, if we look at some things like um, cream prices in Europe, they've been holding up very strong as well. So. Um, it seems like a lot of the reduced demand from food service is is finding its way to other sources. So so far, at least, um, things have uh, are, are looking more optimistic in terms of the outlook for uh, for dairy prices. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week when it will be July. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M and A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week, and in fact for another month. We have lots more interviews either already lined up or done. I already mentioned General Mills, but we also have CanPack, Take-Two, Seelig, Elopack, and the list goes on. And no doubt with all the news, it will probably grow even longer, which I'm fine with, if only there were more hours in the day. But then just imagine if you lived on Mercury, where the year is only about 88 days. So that ties in with Podcast 88, I guess. The other thing about living on Mercury is you'd spend all your time avoiding the heat, unlike in Scotland. Anyway, I hope wherever in the world you are, things are improving and that you have a great week. So until next time, take care and, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.